Well, it is an honor to be with you again. I say again because uh, we were with you many moons ago when you met in a bowling alley. Um, I'm not sure how many here remember those days, uh, but this is certainly um, an upgrade. The Lord has blessed you a little bit. Um, but even more so, it's an honor to be able to um, bring you God's Word. So I invite you this morning to turn to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to study together the first 11 verses. Genesis chapter 37, and I'll start reading in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the, the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bound down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Thus far the reading of God's word. I want us to reflect this morning on a scene from the life of Joseph. I understand you're in the midst of a sermon series on the patriarchs. This morning we're going to focus on, we're going to fast forward a little bit, and I realize you're going to rewind next week, uh, but we're going to fa fast forward to a scene out of the life of Joseph. Now, I'm assuming that many, if not most of us in this room are very familiar with or somewhat familiar with the life of Joseph. But here's a quick refresher, a quick thumbnail sketch. It's a story of a man who's mistreated by his brothers, sold into slavery and taken off to Egypt, a man who's tested, lied about, locked up in jail, the story of a man who interprets dreams, is freed from prison, rises to prominence, and ascends to the throne. It's a story of a man who's ultimately used by God to save millions of people from starvation and devastating famine. So when you look at the life of, of Joseph, we could step back and, and we, could, we could learn a lot about the life of godliness, what it means to be a godly follower of 
um, uh, of Christ from Joseph. For example, when you look at the life of Joseph, we can, we can learn a lot about how to deal with temptation. Just think of the scene with Potiphar's wife. Or we can think about, we can learn a lot from Joseph about how to deal with injustice in our lives. You begin to think of the scene with his brothers and all that his brothers have done to him and in, in the scene at the end of his life. We can learn a lot about dealing with a life of pain or how to deal with pressures in a pagan society. Remember, when Joseph goes to Egypt, Egypt's not a Christian commune, full of pagan influence. And we can learn a lot about how to deal with all those things and remain faithful to the Lord. But we shouldn't miss this. The story of Joseph ultimately points us forward to Jesus. That's not my idea. Uh, Jesus says that himself. You may remember the scene in Luke 24 where he says, Jesus, starting with Moses, starting with Genesis, starting with the story that we just read through the prophets, he taught how the entire Old Testament points forward to him, to Jesus. So as one author puts it, he said, there are stories in the Old Testament that whisper Jesus' name softly, and others shout it so loudly that you can't miss it. I'd argue that the text we're about ready to look at, or the story of Joseph, is far more a megaphone than a murmur. It's difficult to read the story of Joseph, Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, and not see Jesus. In fact, I challenge you to try. Read Genesis 30 to 50 this afternoon. A.W. Pink is a theologian who compiled a list of all the parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. What would you guess was the number of parallels that he came up with? Forty. Over a hundred. Um, over a hundred, and admittedly, I'm reading through them going, eh, it's a bit of a stretch there, but most of them are spot on. It's important to linger on this point because I think many people understand what Christianity is really about. This isn't a problem that just unbelievers or skeptics have. You see, you know, we see it in Christian circles as well. I mean, ask those around you, what, what, what is Christianity really all about? And many answers will come back like this. Well, Christianity means you read your Bible a lot, you pray every day, you go to church regularly. Or others may give a bit more of a philosophical answer and they say, well, Christianity is really a system of thought, of belief, of doctrine. And I'd say, yes, in part, those are all true, but we miss the heart of Christianity when we miss this critical point. Christianity is about a person, a Savior named Jesus. And Christians are those who fix their eyes on Him so that we get to know Him better. We love Him more. When people look at your life, is that what they understand Christianity to be? So my hope this morning with this sermon is, is that God draws us, you and me, past Joseph to the one who is a greater and better Joseph. We're going to study Joseph that we might see and worship our risen Lord. 
All right, time to get to the text. I want us to look at, to consider two main points from this text. Love and hate and how they under, help us understand Jesus and his gospel better. Love and hate. So let's look at the first one, love. Genesis 37 begins with a marker that lets us know we're about ready to start a new chapter. It's the same chapter beginning that you find in every major section in, the, uh, in Genesis. Look at verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. So Moses is starting a new chapter, and it's not just the last chapter in Genesis, it's the longest chapter in Genesis. So what do we learn about Joseph? Well, we learn that he's just 17 years old, and he's a shepherd boy. We also see that like the spies in the book of Numbers, he brings back a bad report. And it's not about giants in the land or the impossibility of the task to infiltrate the land. It's, well, it's a bad report about his brothers, the behavior of his brothers. But I want us to notice verse 3 in particular. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, so Israel... Jacob loved Joseph. Now, one level, you may read that and think, well, duh. Um, you know, it should be natural that a father loves his son. But it means more than that. Keep reading. Now, Jacob or Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. I think we're meant to stop and wrestle with the text at this point. My first thought in studying the text is this. This is the reason why we have family systems therapy. <laughs> this is a really bad idea. This is not going to end well, I can tell you that. Well, why? Because I have kids. And I'm a sibling. My guess is there are people in this room that know firsthand how horrendous favoritism can be for a family, how destructive it, it creates an inner neediness, a lack of affirmation, and often leads to those then fixating themselves on particular people and things at the expense of others. That's not just something we learn from modern psychologists. That's, we actually see that in Scripture. For example, Jacob, remember, felt the pains of favoritism because Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Result? Yeah, as a result, Jacob fixates on Rachel, and Rachel loved Jacob and Esau. Uh, loved Jacob more than Esau, and devised a plan to rob Esau of his birthright. So, favoritism poisons family systems. So, at first reading, I am very quick to condemn this. My second thought was this: Why? Why might Jacob favor Joseph? What background information do we have from the book of Genesis to understand what's going on here? In other words, before we're, we, we quickly condemn, why don't we understand Jacob? What, what's happened? Well, who is Joseph? Well, not only is Joseph, unlike many of his other brothers, uh, he is the son of of Rachel. The text tells us that. The one whom Jacob loves more than his other wives. But not only is that true, 
If you follow the story of Joseph, do you remember how wicked, wicked some of his brothers are? If you remember the stories, one of his brothers slept with his father's, one of his father's wives. Not a good idea. And if you keep reading, um, some of his brothers actually plundered Shechem and murder its inhabitants. You have village genocide. It's a sheer act of hate and revenge. So think about it. Jacob has not only watched his sons grow up, he's watched them grow away from the Lord, and it's probably killing them. It's not, is it not almost understandable that he looks to the youngest, filled with hope that maybe, may, may, just maybe, this one will be different. So we can, can, we can condemn or we can defend Jacob, but here's the thing that in, in, intrigued me as I studied the text. The Bible doesn't do either of those things. Did you notice that the Bible simply states Jacob's love for Joseph as a fact? And so instead of us getting tripped up by either condemning or defending, what I want us to look at is the symbol of Jacob's love. Look down at the text again. What's the symbol of, of the love that Jacob has for Joseph? Look at the end of verse 3. We see it. It's a robe. Um, but the, actually, the language here is incredibly interesting because... We might think, and this, I'm going to date myself here, but we might think of Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1970s musical, which became a Broadway piece and then a film, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So though, uh, the way it's worded, though, is not so much about the color, but the ornamentation. It might be colorful and is definitely long-sleeved, but it's richly ornamented, and what makes it special is not the color or the bubbles that were probably all over it. The important thing is the status that it confirmed. If you look at the Old Testament, the only other time that this word is used of a robe, it's used of a royal garment. So what does that tell us? It tells us who Joseph is. He's Jacob's prince. He's the chosen son. So despite the fact that he's the youngest, Joseph is the one who's set to receive the inheritance. So culturally speaking, things have turned, on, turned absolutely on their heads. In fact, if we were to hit the fast-forward button and go to John chapter 4, the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, John sets the scene by telling us this. Quote, the well was located near the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. See, Joseph's the chosen one. He's the one set to receive the inheritance. So when we look at Joseph, we need to see he's the beloved son. We have the chosen son. We have the, the son of the inheritance. And given the introduction that I, start, uh, that, that I gave, you might already be anticipating where I'm going with this. Joseph is, or is a type, he foreshadows Jesus. 
It's true. You think about it. Jesus is the beloved son. The father says at Jesus' baptism, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Jesus is the chosen one who's set to receive um, all things as his inheritance because he's the firstborn of creations, Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20. So yes, Joseph anticipates Christ, but that's not where I want us to go. I think this robe helps us understand and see the beauty of the gospel and one of the main reasons why we struggle to believe. What do I mean? One of the greatest hindrances to embracing Christianity is underestimating the love that God has for us. Even more, it's one of the greatest barriers to finding a deep and satisfying relationship with God, even when you do become a Christian. So please don't miss this. Genesis 37 is a mirror. It's there to help you see Joseph. But by God's grace, you're meant to get a glimpse of God's love for you. It's meant to tell the story of God's love for you. So my guess is each one of us came through those doors this morning carrying various burdens, various hurts, various degrees of our recognition of sin. Some of us have failed big time this week, and you're feeling the weight of that failure as you enter this morning. Others of us should probably feel more weight than we do. But, you know, we all struggle with holiness, but as we look at the story of Jesus, we should be reminded of this. In Christ, you are the apple of the Father's eye. You are the object of his deepest affection. You are beloved. You are chosen. You are promised an inheritance which will never fade away. So the question, one of the questions, and most important questions I can ask this morning is, do you know who you are? Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you're a struggler. But are you just as convinced that you were loved and cherished and adored by the King of Kings? Are you just as convinced that as we gather this morning, as a people who follow Him, that, that we are awaiting the most ornate and majestic garments? In fact, Scripture reminds us of this. Even now in Christ, we are clothed with the most pure and magnificent garments because we are dressed in the very righteousness of Christ. We're to Reformation Sunday. Do you realize that thought transformed the life of a very fat monk living in Germany in the 16th century who then transformed a country which led to a movement that transformed the world? You see, when Martin Luther realized that Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 17, for the righteousness of God is revealed um, from faith for faith, it's written the righteous shall live for faith. When he realized that what Paul was talking about was not the righteousness that God expects from you, but the righteousness that he gives to you for the first time in his life, he understood what Christianity was about. 
It's about a God who gives and promises, not just demands and expects. He understood the sacrifice of Christ, and it utterly transformed him, and it will you too. So if you're a skeptic, please listen to me. In every other religion in the world, you have to earn the love of God. You have to make an effort. You have to flatter yourself, accomplish something so that God loves you or that you can love yourself. Christianity is the only religion in which God pursues you, changes you, and assures you he will never leave. Let me apply this to Christians. One of the greatest joy killers of your Christian walk is when you fall into this trap. God saved me by grace, but now I have to earn his love by works. He loves me or loved me, but I got to keep doing things for him in order for him to like me. What changed Luther was the realization that we are saved by grace and sanctified by grace. So what do you see when you see Joseph? Well, here's what you should see. You should see a man of status and position. You should see Jesus, a man of status and position, but you should also see this, the love that the Heavenly Father has for you, the status and position you have before Him. You know, honestly, if you don't understand that, Christianity, the gospel will bore you week after week. Second point, hate. Looked at love. There's another aspect which marks out this man, um, Joseph. He, he's a dreamer. So we read it in uh, Genesis 37, and you're gonna, if you keep reading, you're, you're going to see the role that dreams take or play in the life of Joseph. Well, you know, you'll see it when he's in prison, when he's before Pharaoh. So he's not only the recipient of dreams, he's also the interpreter of dreams. If you ever, you know, I've wondered, um, what, in reading the dreams, have you ever noticed that dreams, at least in Joseph, always come in pairs? Did you notice that? So in Genesis 37, there are two dreams. And in Hebrew, when, when things come in pairs, it, it, it connotes absolute certainty. These things will come to pass. You actually read that in Genesis 41, verse 32. So the first dream is about sheaves of grain, and those represent his brothers. But remember, Joseph's, Joseph's a shepherd. He's not a farmer. So it's hard not to imagine in some way these sheaves are going to point forward to a famine yet to come. But the sheaves of grain represent his brothers, and what do they do? Well, they bow down to Joseph. And then the second dream is even more intense. These are cosmic bodies, sun, moon, representing all of the family, and they all do the same. They bow down to Joseph. They fall down and worship him. You can understand why some people are drawn to criticize Joseph at this point. Some commentators will say things, things like this. You know, what is he thinking? I mean, how foolish can he be to relay these dreams to his brothers? He, he lacks all diplomatic sense. He's like a typical you know, young person or old person who's quite mature, who doesn't think through things. How many times have you thought that as a parent? You didn't think that one through to the end, did you? 
So you read, you know, and in fact, one theologian writes this. He says, Joseph is an arrogant, pompous, egocentric, self-focused brat awash in megalomania. All right, then. But let me, let me suggest another perspective. If you remember the origin of these dreams, if you remember that God Almighty, God himself, is giving these dreams to Joseph, could it be that Joseph is just filled with wonder, filled with amazement and even excitement about what God's about ready to do? Here's another thing I want you to notice. Three times in increasing measure, these dreams, these revelations from God lead to hatred for Joseph. In verse 4, it starts off by telling us that Joseph is hated by his brothers. Look at verse 5. He tells them his dream, what happens, where they hate him even more. Then verse 8, his brothers hate him even more for the, uh, the words that he says about his dreams. And by verse 11, you're thinking, where can this possibly go? I mean, how much worse can it get? You know, but there, they're filled with hate and jealousy. And it's not just because the status that the Father has conveyed him, but could it be that it's because he's revealing God's word? Joseph is utterly and truly despised by the end. And we notice this. Notice the message that he brings. It's it's an upside-down message of salvation. In a culture where the older brother gets the inheritance, gets the status in a culture where sons would bow down to their fathers until the day their fathers died. Here's a younger brother whose older brothers bow down before him. Not only that, but his father is bowing down before him. It didn't make any sense, culturally speaking. It goes against the grain of cultural expectation. So how do we apply this? I, I think one of the, the obvious applications of this text is actually largely to the young adults in the room. Remember, how old is Joseph? 17. He's a teenager. If you stand up as a Christian, one who is loved by God and brings his word in a school or a university, the chances are you're going to get pushback, if not hatred. Hatred leads to canceling. Pushback leads to Twitter mobs. Sometimes you just get ghosted by those who you thought were your closest friends. I'm sure you've seen that, and you need to be prepared for that. If you stand out as a Christian because of the robes that you wear and bring an upside-down message of salvation, you will be bullied by this culture, by this society. And you need to be proactive, not just reactive. You need to prepare yourself uh, for that struggle by looking to Jesus for your strength and your courage, by grounding yourself in the gospel. Well, how do you do that? That sounds rather pious, rather theological, but bring it down to a grassroots level. How do you you prepare yourself? You celebrate the gospel daily. I remember, I think Phil and I were in in a preaching class together, and I remember one of the the, the feedback that I got from one of my early sermons, and it went something like this. I'm paraphrasing. 
David, sometimes listening, the theology, uh, sometimes the theology in your preaching and your understanding of the gospel is like mathematics. This plus this plus this minus this, you're saved. It's as simple as that. You can explain it, David, but it doesn't seem to sing or dance in your heart. Ouch. Ouch. And the problem, the thing is, it wouldn't have hurt if it weren't true. I still find that I'm often more concerned about getting the words right, about crossing my theological T's and dotting my doctrinal I's, rather than singing and dancing the gospel in worship and adoration. Is that you this morning? Does that describe your Christian life? Let me encourage you to celebrate the gospel each morning, rehearse it, reiterate it until you can sing it, until it changes you. Think of it in another, in another way. The gospel needs to become the new algorithm of your life, just as YouTube determines the next thing that you're going to see, the next thing that you're going to look at because of the previous things you've clicked on. The gospel needs to be the thing that determines what you see, what you say, what you think next because it shapes you over and over. It needs to become the shaping influence of your life. If you can't celebrate the gospel on a personal level, we'll never be able to celebrate it for others. If the gospel doesn't capture us personally, we're going to struggle to explain the power of the gospel to anyone else. Isn't it true? If the love of God isn't real and personal, we're going to struggle to contemplate how the love of God would compel us to go to the darkest corners of the globe. Christ endured hatred. He came to his own people and they rejected him. He spoke of an exaltation through suffering for them and, he, and they laughed at his upside down message of hope and salvation. But I'd urge us to remember this in closing. Remember why Christ did all that. He endured hatred for you, for us. He endured hatred to bear our sin. He endured hatred out of a deep fatherly love that God has for you, his child. When suffering or hatred comes, we become quickly disoriented, and we begin to question, God, do you still love me? Did you not see what just happened in my life? Do you even care? And you will lose all, or, or, all, all sense of God's love or care for you unless you see and understand this. Jesus is the one who lost the Father's coat so you could be reassured that you have it. Jesus is the one who takes our filthy rags of rebellion and gives us perfect robes of righteousness. Jesus is the one who lost the Father's love, paying for our penalty so that we could, in spite of an imperfect life, in spite of the ways that we live and express hatred towards God, that God would love us and never leave us. If you have bowed the knee to God, asking him to accept you because of what Christ has done, you get the coat. It's yours. 
You can know he loves you. He has made you righteous and breathtakingly beautiful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this message would go far beyond just human words and penetrate human hearts. I pray for those of us who struggle to to know, do you really love us? That we'd begin to see the coat, we'd see the robes of righteousness, we'd we'd see the dedication of our Savior to pursue us, even while filthy and rebels. And it would transform us, give us hope, give us confidence, deal with our anxiousness and our depression, that we might, because we see the beauty and the majesty of Christ and what he's given us, I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.